Hey everybody, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Off speaking, author of the Macro Compass, but you know, you know me by now. I'm gonna stop here. I want to welcome my guest today and good friend actually, who's Imran Laka. Imran is the founder of Options Insight, and actually, before founding his own company, he traded options and you know a bunch of other stuff for banks, hedge funds, you name it. He's a veteran. He's an extremely good guest. I'm very happy to have you here, Imran. How are you doing? There you go. Thanks for having me, man. A pleasure. So let's uh, jump into it straight away. And I think people here on the Blockworks YouTube channel would like to hear a bit more about Europe because, you know, we often hear about the US, but both of us are based in Europe. You are in, um, in London. I'm in, uh, in the Netherlands or in Italy, wherever I am. But in Europe, a bunch of stuff is going on. So I guess on everybody's radar, there is the um, Russia and uh, Nord Stream pipeline uh, pipe situation there and the maintenance and what's going to happen if they reopen it or not. So let's start from there because you're also a broad macro guy. So let, let's let's hear your take on the Russia-Europe gas situation heading into winter. Sure. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of views flying around about this right now, but it definitely seems to be the thing that's got Europe spooked, right? So European markets have been trading a bit heavy into this, uh, but literally as we speak today, they've squeezed a bit uh, into the close because there was news that the that the pipeline is going to be coming back on, right? Which is like a sigh of relief by the market. So, so you know, people are kind of strategizing about, it, you know, what is the right thing for Russia to do here? What's what, Are they going to squeeze Europe and are they going to do it now or are they going to wait till winter? Where's it going to have the most impact and things like that? Um, so look, I'm not a geopolitical strategist. So all I know is that this is one big risk hanging over Europe. And whilst maybe this time round, they, they get through it by, by the skin of their teeth, it is something that is looming. And that's probably going to provide some tail risk in Europe, right? And so if we look at volatility markets, which again, I obviously look at a lot, there's going to be some risk premium in European vol, particularly to the downside, versus say US vol basically we we did start to see that already um you know most of the time if you look back for like the last couple of years or whatever typically european downside trades a bit cheaper right on a relative basis to say S&P and that's partly because you know europe is a bit not quite as heavily invested in equities as say the US has been so the need for protection hasn't been there as much basically right but slowly slowly since the since the Ukraine-Russia issues in March, that skew has kind of started to steepen back up again. And the relative value between European downside skew relative to US has kind of flipped the other way. So that tail risk is definitely there and being priced by the market. And it's something that I don't think is about to evaporate anytime soon. And Imran, uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, I'm not an expert as well, but on the macro trading floor, we recently had Marco Papic, who is one of the best geopolitical experts out there, I think. And Marco presented quite an interesting case where he discussed the fact that while everybody's focusing on, on Europe and the fact that effectively they are dependent on Russia to get their gas through for winter, 74% uh, of Russian natural gas income receipts actually come from Europe. So would they shut down the entire thing completely? Russia wouldn't be making any money whatsoever throughout the entire winter. And that money accounts for quite a lot of, of uh, GDP contribution, income contribution from Russia too. So it's not as easy as people depict it from as at least Marco's perspective. Interestingly, you talk about um, the downside being priced in Europe. And another thing that actually is on everybody's radar is Italy right now. Because tomorrow we're going to have quite an event with Draghi trying to 
not fall as a prime minister of Italy effectively and uh, facing the vote of confidence. Can you summarize for uh, people uh, how do you think about that risk in Europe too, the Italian risk in this case? I, I think the easiest read through really there is Bund BTPs, right? So if you look at Bund BTPs, um, they are quite heavily impacted by what goes on in Italian politics. I mean, you know better than I do. And, um, and then that has a read through on the euro price action as well, right? So obviously a lot of factors have kind of culminated together last week into that euro weakness. Euro kind of breached the parity level that everyone was looking at. It managed to hold on the first test, which these big psychological levels typically do hold on the first test. But I do fear that the next time it breaks, things won't be quite so easy and it may, it may have quite a lot of room to the downside. So that's something I'm watching. I have been, uh, I have had options positions in Euro, uh, which I entered quite a while ago. Um, as my subscribers will know. So I had some puts on in Euro to September. Um, and typically when you, when you own uh, options in FX, it, it, it pays you to go a little bit longer dated, right? So FX options tend to, or used to trade on a single digit volatility. So they're quite cheap, right? In premium terms, but they're cheap for a reason because on a, on a day to day basis, FX rates don't really move that much, right? If you, if you get half a percent out of an FX cross, you're doing quite well on a daily yeah. basis, right? Whereas they do tend to trend quite a lot, right? When they find a trend, they can, persist in that trend for months on end, right? So what typically is a good way of using FX options is to just go three to six months out, use the fact that the absolute vol levels aren't very high and get onto that trend and just let that option increase in value basically as that trend materializes. So that's something I've been doing in Euro and also in dollar yen up until recently. But when we had quite a big move in the dollar to quite significant long-term levels, and the implied volatilities across the FX space rallied quite a lot, I used that opportunity to monetize all my options and then roll them out to six-month maturity, so January next year, and roll them into spreads rather than outright options so that I don't take too much implied volatility risk because now it's elevated, basically. Right? So that, that's the way I was able to monetize and restructure those trades, which you typically would do when vols aren't so cheap. So you have been basically short on the euro via puts effectively against the dollar. Um, we are recording on July the 19th, by the way. It's the it's Tuesday and it's two days before a big ECB meeting, European Central Bank meeting, which is going to be on Thursday. So when you are short the euro, even as you restructure, let's say you trade a little bit, but people who are looking at euro dollars right now, shall they look at the European Central Bank? Shall they be afraid of the European Central Bank becoming more serious when it comes to a hiking cycle? How do you think of the central bank in Europe right now? Yeah, I mean, I just think they're cornered, to be honest. I, I think they're going to they're gonna try and hike, and there's a whiff that they might do 50 bips to try and... But let's be clear, they're at minus 50 right now, the policy rate, right? So even if they do 50 bips, they go to zero, yeah. and inflation's at 8%, so whoopee-doo, right? It's not, it's not that groundbreaking. So I, I think that, yeah, they should go 50 but let's see how the credit market responds, right? And, I, and I'm skeptical that their, their anti-fragmentation tools are going to do that much to stop spreads really testing their resolve and saying, guess what? You, you're not going to be able to hike rates very much. So I would use any strength in euro as a massive fading opportunity. I have obviously closed out some of that delta by rolling in the money puts into out of the money put spreads. So my delta is as low as it's been in ages because I'm looking to reinitiate more shorts 
in a squeeze, right? So I'm thinking 103 and a half is the obvious first bounce level because that was the big support that was holding. And when that broke, we just went straight to parity. So on the upside, that's going to be your first resistance. I'll actually be surprised if we break that. But if we do break that, then there's other levels higher up that you can start to reinitiate shorts. And in my case, where I've done put spreads, I'll be able to buy back the short leg of my put spread and leave myself with some puts to be ready for the next leg down. That's the way I'm seeing it. So Imran, you don't seem extremely positive on Europe right now, um, which brings me to talk about consensus with you. Because you are, you have been, you are a seasoned professional in taking risks as well and running, um, you know, a risk book effectively with trades on uh, for banks and hedge funds. And I would like to get your take on uh, structuring the trade and taking positions in the market. Many people actually believe that you know they have a subjective probability in their head, and they say you know fifty percent chance or sixty percent chance this is going to happen. I'm going to trade it. But actually, the interesting part is that you should always ask yourself, what is the market pricing in against that, that subjective probability of yours? And what is the risk reward you can find in trades? That speaks to consensus and what's priced in. But what's your take when you, when you look, for example, in the option market at these uh, subjective probabilities that you are assessing against what the market is pricing in? Basically, consensus. Yeah, I mean, a, a good example of this is earnings, right? When you're playing earnings, you can look at, the implied volatility term structure, and you can imply what the move is expected on an earnings date. So obviously in the macro world, it's going to be things like central banks or central bank announcements or um, elections and things like that, referendums, whatever it might be. And in the single stock world, it will be corporate earnings, right? So we're literally in the middle of earnings season now. So you could look at Google, for example, and you could have a look at the, um, the weekly maturities and you could the week that contains the earnings versus the week that doesn't contain the earnings. And you could imply that the implied move for Google's 5% for earnings or something like that. And then you could then look back at previous earnings announcements to see how does that move compare with previous? And then in this particular instance, is there anything that I expect to be significantly different from expectations to then make that decision whether that earnings vol is cheap or expensive, basically, right? So uh, that's how I would typically look at it in options land, to see what the implied moves are for events. Um, but then you've also got to look at price action. So after the event, right? So you had bank earnings, for example, last week. And, you know, it's no major surprise to a lot of us that the bank earnings are missing estimates, right? And JP Morgan missed, Morgan Stanley missed, and they were down about 5 or 6%. But the minute you got a whiff of a beat from City the entire sector screamed higher, right? And and that kind of was quite telling to me. First of all, City never beats. Right? <laughs> I used to work there, so I'm allowed to say that, right? But the fact that City beat and the whole sector screamed higher, and the fact the sector is down 20% still on the year, tells you that people are set up for that type of earnings sell-off, right? People know that the next leg down in markets, if it comes, comes from a repricing of forward earnings, right? Which it feels like are not reflecting the recession that a lot of us see coming, right? And because of that, we need to closely watch the price action post earnings because if every single stock is not selling off or rallying on bad earnings, you know, what that tells you something about the market, right? So. And, and we get this set up, we're positioning, because the fundamentals have been so bad for so long, 
you know, we're all ready for this market to go to 3,000. It's not going to go there in a straight line. And there will be times where it squeezes the shorts hard. That's what every bear market looks like. And I wouldn't be overly surprised to see 4,200 before 3,400, yeah. right? So you need to be careful of that. I still remember my mentor, Imran, teaching me the first time, first ever trade I put on. I sh- he asked me, okay, I'll write down a one pager to me. Why shall I allow you to take risk in my book? I was trading, you know, part of his book back then. I was a junior. And so I wrote down this thing and the conclusion was a you know, big analysis behind. And the conclusion was, um, I want to short Austria, I think it was back then. Okay, I want to short some Austrian bonds, blah, blah, blah. I wrote it down. And um, he said to me, okay, so what's your probability that happens? I don't know, 60%? Okay, good. So what's the market pricing in? I don't know. And he looked at me like, what do you mean you don't know? I'm like, I don't care. I mean, this is my, uh, my, my subjective probability against what? Of course, you need to weigh, and he taught me back then, it's a weighting mechanism against what the market is pricing in, which you can quantitatively assess with options pretty well, Imran. So let's maybe talk about uh, that for a second. I think it would be very interesting for people to understand how you literally try and approach and, and calculate uh, some of these implied probabilities, because it is an important metric together with sentiment and price action. Those are more qualitative, let's say the, the magic, the art of investing, but there are quantitative ways to assess what's priced in. So let's try and break it down for a second, Imran. And I don't, I don't know anybody better than you that can do that. So the floor is yours. Sure, okay, so what, one way of thinking about it is implied volatility premiums. Right. So typically implied volatility will trade above realized volatility. Okay. So, and by how much that trades above really is a function of how much risk people are concerned about, right? People are very concerned and very scared about something. Implied volatility will trade at a bigger premium than if people are completely complacent and uh, and don't see any concerns, right? So a great example of this would be in crypto markets last week. And I know you probably don't like talking about crypto this that much, but Not at all. Ahead, of, <laughs> ahead of CPI last week, you had 20 vol point implied volatility premium between Bitcoin and it's realized. Mm-hmm. And you had a 30 vol point premium in Ethereum, which is That's massive. Nice. And literally from Wednesday, to Friday, that premium got crushed back down to zero after the event, basically, right? So that is one place that we can very clearly see if the street is concerned or if the street is relaxed about it. And, and Imran, why would, normally speaking, in an average training environment, implied volatility be often above realized? What's driving that, that difference, generally because speaking? Because it allows you to sleep at night. Very good. Yeah. So it's protection, right? People own options to protect the un, the unfavorable outcomes, okay? Uh-huh. And and if they've got an option against their exposure, they know they can sleep easy, basically, right? So they're willing to pay a little bit of premium for that. So that's why typically there's a risk premium there. Right? All right. So and, sorry for interrupting. And, now back to the implied, to the amount of implied probability premium, implied volatility premium, sorry. Yeah, so, so, so again, that was a large volatility premium, right? 20 to 30 vol points, because there was a specific event that the market was concerned was going to create a move. Okay. Now, and that move could have happened in either direction. Okay. Now, when there's fear about a certain direction, that's when skew comes into the mix, right? So skew is where we compare the implied vol of puts versus calls, downside puts versus upside calls. Okay. 
And um, if the puts are trading at a premium to the calls, that's because there's a lot of demand for that side of the distribution, right? Yeah. People want protection for that tail, not the other one. They're willing to fund that tail by selling the other tail because that's the one they're concerned about, basically, right? So skew often trades in a bit of a range. So is skew trading at the low end of its range? Is it mid-range? Is it rich? That gives us a feel for, again, how scared and fearful the market is about certain things. Now, typically... Skew can be a lead, leading indicator, right? So if you see skew really starting to go one way and the spot prices aren't really moving yet to reflect that, that's telling you the options market participants are getting ready for a directional shift in that direction, basically, okay? So that can often lead and give you a bit of a signal, okay? But when the spot then does actually move in the direction of the skew and it goes violently that way, and skew continues to, to go higher and higher and higher, that can often then be a counter signal because you can look at skew at astronomical levels. The spot move has already gone that way. And then you can say, okay, now this is overdone because no one's willing to sell that downside tail anymore, basically, yeah. right? Which means that everyone's hedged, everyone's paid up for it, paid the wrong price for it. And now the market is exhausted, basically. So skew really gives you a lot of signals, um, you know, that you can use. Obviously, it's not the be all and end all. It's not foolproof. But as one of the ingredients that you look at to try and identify inflections in the market, I think it's very useful. If we try, let's say, to discuss for a second um, the call spreads or put spreads as well as a way to calculate the implied probability. I think that could be as well an interesting thing for the audience to understand. Effectively, by striking uh, two calls very close to each other, you can, as you already said before, talking about the euro, you can limit the amount of implied volatility that you're taking on, and rather you can focus on the direction. So I let you take it off from there to explain how you can look at call spreads or put spreads to determine what is the market implied probability of a certain event and therefore whether your subjective probability should be higher or lower than that and therefore if you can take a position on, on the underlying. Sure, sure. This is something your friend Jim Leitner does a lot, right? These yes. Digital, <clears throat> these are called digitals or digital call spreads or whatever you want to call them. So the idea being that, you know, if you were to look at parity, for example, I mean, we're back up here at 102 and a half, but let's say when we were up at 110, if you're looking three months forward in time and you're looking at a very, very tight put spread on, on Euro, right? Struck at parity and then maybe half a big figure, parity and 99 and a half, right? So very tight put spread. And you saw what the price of that put spread was. So obviously the, the payout of that put spread is 50 cents, right? It's basically yeah. half a big figure on Euro, okay? But if, um, if the cost of that put spread was only 10 cents, right? Then that means the market is implying a probability of 20%, right? It's 10 cents divided by 50 cents, right? So the 20% probability is the, the payout, the risk reward ratio that, that put spread's giving you is kind of like your implied probability of that outcome happening, right? So, so that's the idea. Yeah. And I think it's a very interesting idea because basically what you do with a put spread or a call spread, you Effectively, you buy a put and you sell a put in this case with the put spread. And by doing that very close to each other, what you are doing effectively is you're limiting the upside you can make because if you bought a put at one, for example, and then the euro dollar ends up at 0.8, for instance, 
by the fact you have sold another put to create the put spread strategy, it means you you obviously will not benefit from all the way down, but the channel you have identified, you can look at how much you paid for that put spread channel, basically, against what the maximum payout is, because it's capped at a certain point, and you can derive an implied probability. And that really helps because these data, generally speaking, on very liquid markets, Imran, correct me if I'm wrong, but generally you can get calls and puts quoted in, in you know, uh, public, publicly available information, especially for very liquid instruments, and you can therefore build an implied uh, probability distribution all the way from, you know, 20% of the money to 20% um, plus and minus, which can be a quite interesting tool. Yeah, for sure. And and I mean, obviously, in terms of the monetization of these things, you know, the, the only issue with that is that that probability is the probability that, you know, we go down there and we stay down there below the bottom strike, yeah. right? And, and, and we know how markets move, right? Markets can have a big move and then they can bounce from it and you have five minutes down there to take profit that you miss out on, right? So, you know, it's not quite that clean in terms of like trading it. Um, but what people tend to do is they tend to try and identify one of these probabilities of outcomes that they think is completely mispriced. They put the trade on and then when the market does finally wake up and move that way and it becomes priced as a 50% probability because it's an at the money, they then bang it out get rid of it and take their money basically right so they don't wait around for the outcome to become 100 yes. they just the repricing from 10 percent, 20 percent, whatever it is to 50 percent that you then monetize yeah right? so this brings me again to something i wanted to discuss with you which is the mentality of taking a position it's not always about the terminal payoff especially in options but also in general also in directional trades it's not always about the terminal payoff but it's about the probability distribution shifts if you're able to anticipate them, either the shift of, let's say, how the, how the distribution is actually centered around a certain outcome, or even as you trade very often these kind of structures, the skew is shifting, the tails are shifting, and you can capture all of that without having to wait for terminal payoff, right? 100%, right? You know, you know people say about how trading is about anticipating the anticipation of others. There's no, never a truer word said when you talk about options. Right. Because, and I'll give you an example, right? We were talking about implied moves. Like, I probably traded the French election of 2017 three times over a month before the election, right? With, you know, as in, I think I started trading it six months before the election. I traded in and out of that risk. And I ended up with no position for the actual election itself. But trading the pricing of that election and what is embedded in the implied moves is what options allows you to do when you understand calendars and term structure and all that stuff that you can take a position on. So yeah, totally agree with that point. I think we went a bit deep into the uh, option strategy slash how to structure a position against market consensus. Let's zoom back for the last seven, eight minutes of the interview to uh, Global Macro. And the elephant in the room left uh, here is the US, obviously. And I try to avoid the topic as much as I can because I often end up talking about that in any case. But I want to get your take on the Federal Reserve meeting, which is in roughly a week from now, um, which will be also a very important one, and about the forward guidance and where do you think US macro is going here? I've generally been quite bearish. I mean, we did a we did a round table, right, with yourself, and we were all quite cautious on the market. We we were all putting on hedges, etc. And you know, I've had I've had various um hedges on that I've restructured along the way as we've been selling off in equities, right? 
Um, in my latest sort of iteration, I, I did take the delta down again because I was fearful of a squeeze. Um, and like I say, the type of squeeze that I think would really hurt and sting people would be back up to like 41, 4,200. Okay. That I don't think so far any of the bounces that we've seen have done enough damage to the shorts yet. And so I'm still waiting for that one that really hurts the shorts. Right. But fundamentally, you know, I, I do think that the inflation data is showing a lot of stickiness, right? Um, and whilst the bond market seems convinced that we're getting a pivot and we're getting some harsh cuts next year, you know, I, I don't know how long it's going to take the inflation data to roll over, but there's, there's a lot of stickiness there. So I, I kind of, I'm erring on the side of the Fed still has to keep the, the foot on the pedal a little bit. And the market doesn't seem to be pricing that in. The bond market, you know, is is sure that we're getting cuts, yeah. right? And the equity market seems to be celebrating that fact, even though the only way you get said cuts is by a recession and probably a shit show in the market, right? So, and yet we haven't had that yet. So it's, it feels like there's a bit of a divergence going on between what equities are doing and what rates are saying needs to happen. Yeah, right? I think it's... Um maybe the solution to the riddle, if you want to try and make some sense into this, is that if you look at the inflation break-even curve, so if you look basically at the forward pricing of future inflation according to bond market, um, to bond traders, you see quite an inverted curve. So the fixings basically are priced to come down very, very quick in inflation terms over next year. I think I looked at one year forward, one year inflation. So the inflation rate, prevailing inflation rate between June 23 and June 24 in the US. And I was priced at like, three percent or something so basically inflation has been priced to come in very quickly very sharply which effectively would be sort of conditional to the federal reserve cutting rates those would be sort of accommodating cuts some sort of insurance cuts if you wish imran because the bond market as well isn't pricing the fed to cut to zero it's pricing the fed to cut from three and a half to two and a half right so mm. some level of neutral so it's a bit like a the fed will actually accommodate this trend down in inflation swaps that we price and it's all going to be a happy party of soft landing where there's going to be no recession otherwise in running a recession we wouldn't have the fed funds priced at two and a half percent in 25 and 26 you left them priced much lower than that so it feels like you know the equity market is sitting in this at this you know intersection where Fed is going to cut rates because inflation is coming down already. The economy, yes, is slowing down, but the Fed can accommodate the whole process and it can all be easy and nice, soft lending. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it feels like they're discounting the probability of uh, more supply issues, basically, as well, right? So what if uh, what if we get a geopolitical escalation, right? I mean, we got a whiff of it on this Nord Stream stuff. Hopefully we get through it, right? But that's not that doesn't seem to be being priced right and we don't know on the china side of things what their policy is going to look like are they going to keep this covid zero policy that keeps shutting down their economy or they're actually going to let their economy have a go and stimulate into the congress later this year you know there's all these moving parts as well which you know can add to the inflation story right and so i think whilst you know people are looking at the economy slowing down and saying inflation is going to fall with it maybe they're discounting the other side of the inflation story a bit too much. Yeah, yeah. so I did just the research that, uh, well, by, by the time the video is out, it's going to be available anyway. Um, I'm going to give an anticipation to you, at least in this video. I looked at the 16 episodes of recession in the US over the last 100 years, 
I then run an analysis every time that inflation was at 3% or higher entering the recession, let's say, how much did the recession manage to bring down inflation? Did it in the first place at all? By how much and how long did it take for inflation to revert from peak to at least 2%? So how much damage and how long does it take, right? If it does so. And 11 of these recessions had inflation above 3% entering the recession, so they qualify in the sample. 11 out of 11, 100% of the cases, a recession did quite a big damage to inflation. The average um, peak to trough was 7% year-on-year inflation down. It's quite a large number. Um, And it took on average 16 months, though, so almost a year and a half to bring inflation from the peak to 2%. Not even to the trough, just to 2%. It took 16 months to achieve that. So obviously, there's a, quite a garden variety of recessions in there. There are big ones like the, the 20s or the 30s or the 2008. There are recessions in the 70s where you basically had inflation at 12% entering. And even with the sharp recession, you only got down to 5%. That was it. It never went lower than that. But the big picture is that inflation always manages to hurt uh, sorry, recessions always manage to hurt inflation to a meaningful extent. That's what I found out, at least. Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, um, Imran, I think uh, the last question I want to ask is, people who have listened to this interview will probably by now ask themselves, how can I hear more about Imran and all these options and all these strategies and you know all this smart stuff the guy said. So where, the, where can they find you? Sure. Okay. So uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, obviously, options underscore insight. Uh, I also have a website, options-insight.com. That's where you can find out all about our services, what we do. You can also book a sales call to talk to the team, find out if we can help you on your journey, whether it's, you know, to trading more options or just getting more educated, you know, come check us out uh, and say hello. Imran sits at the intersection of macro and options and yes, taken risks, serious risks for hedge funds and banks. A very nice guy to work and only recommend checking him out both on Twitter and his own website. Imran, thanks for being here. And um, people, if you like this kind of discussion and want to hear more, just subscribe to the Blockworks Macro channel and you're going to be hearing more. Thanks, Imran. Thanks, Rob.